0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, we're coming down to the last couple of messages in the Home Life series, and, and uh, Christmas is here in just a couple of weeks, and then in the new year we'll start a new uh, series, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, but last week we talked about, you know, in this Home Life series, you know, we've been talking about all fall, You know how so many people in our culture and so many people in uh, Christians, it's it's not just the culture, but the culture is impacting us and how we live. People are living with tremendous amounts of stress. Uh, People are living with not enough connection to God, to each other, with love. People are stressed at work. Christians aren't living their lives as an act of worship to God. So we've been talking about that. How do you live your life as an act of worship to God? And now the last couple of weeks, we started to dip into, you know, where is all this stress coming from? And last week, we looked at the 10th commandment about not coveting. And the, and the huge biblical message of the importance of contentment. And we looked at how that is a huge key piece in this whole issue of why as Christians and as people in our culture, we're living such stressed out, busy, overcommitted uh, lives. And in today's message, I want to touch on another practice, although I won't use the words coveting or contentment that much in this message. The practice we're gonna talk about in this message is another weapon, is another uh, structure, spiritual discipline for our lives, a weapon in our hands against coveting, and an, and an attempt to get control of our lives and live our lives from a place of, of contentment. And so, last week we looked at the Ten Commandments, and with particularly we focused on commandment number 10, and today I wanna to look at commandment number four. And commandment number four is this one deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 12 to 15 it says this observe the sabbath day to keep it holy as the lord your god commanded you six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god on it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So we're going to talk about the Sabbath in this message. Um, but in the first half of this message, I first want to we're going to focus a little, we're going to learn a little bit about The commandments again, we're going to learn a little bit about how God views the commandments in the Old Testament. We're going to look at what the Sabbath is not. Before we can look at is there something in here that is life-giving for us in modern society, we first have to make sure that we're not going to end up in any weird legalistic places. And so the first thing we have to do is just ask ourselves a question because a lot of Christians are confused about the Sabbath command. And we're confused about it because it, certainly doesn't seem to us to be the same as the other nine. I mean, we all know the, I mean, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, we all know they're, they're really important. And again, we looked at a bunch last week. Uh, do not murder, I mean, that's important, okay? Uh, do not commit adultery, that's important. Do not steal, that's important. Do not lie, that's important. And then the one we focused on last week, do not covet, that's really important. And then some of the, you know, the first three about not worshipping idols and not using the Lord's name in vain. All of those are really black and white. They're really black and white. I mean, you, you, it's very clear if you've done them or not done them. I mean, you know if you've murdered someone or not. I think, I've never done it. But they're dead, you did it to them, okay, right? Adultery, it's not halfway, you know, uh, stealing, you take something that's not yours You stole. It's wrong. It's clearly defined, okay? But the Sabbath, we don't know what to do with it. So on one hand, we look, it's in the Ten Commandments. We all know the Ten Commandments are there, and we all know they're important. It's important not to take the Lord's name in vain. It's important not to steal and lie and covet. We all know that. So we look at those big ten, and we know we're supposed to live by the big ten, and we know that they show us the difference between right and wrong. But when it gets to number four, we're not really sure what to do with it, because it's part of the ten. But Most of us don't really observe it, or do we? We kind of trail off. If someone would say, well, is commandment four still for today? I mean, the rest of them are all for today. And it's kind of like, well, uh, trail off. We don't really know what to do with the Sabbath. So the first question we have to ask is, is commandment number four on the same level as the other nine? And the simplistic way a lot of Christians would look at it is is they say, Hey, if it's part of the 10, it must be equal with the other nine. It just must be part of it all. It's part of the package. It must be the same. And yet we all intuitively know that it is not the same. It's not as clearly defined. It's not as black and white. And furthermore, we all intuitively know there are many exceptions where it's okay to break the Sabbath, which is not true of the other laws. It's never okay to commit adultery. Okay? It's not okay to steal. But we can all think of many examples where we would say, that's not a sin. For example, if a doctor on their day off or the Saturday or Sunday, whatever you want to call the Sabbath, uh, if a doctor gets called in because they have to operate on a patient, I don't think any of us, or for sure not many of us, would consider that a sin. Um, if, a, if a truck driver... Has a has a load of animals? Could be pigs or cows or ducks, for that matter. It really doesn't matter. I don't think there's a lot of trucks moving ducks around, but <laughs> trucker's got a he's got a he's got a trailer full of animals. He can't just stop for 24 hours because it's the Sabbath and just leave them out there in the cold or the hot or whatever. We would all expect him. We would say that's the wrong thing to do. Okay, so. Um, We know there's exceptions. Now, someone might argue to that and they say, well, you know, there's always someone who's super smart in a group this big. (laughs) They might say, well, I can think of some exceptions to some of the other Ten Commandments too. Right? For example, a big one that often, uh, or maybe not often, but with some people gets brought up, um, is exceptions. Is it ever, are there ever exceptions where it's okay to lie? What do you think about that? What do you think? Okay, how many of you can think of an example in scripture where someone lied and it was okay to do? Can you think of an example? Rahab? Okay, boom. Hey, the other services got it too. You guys are just as good as the two Saturday services. I do have my doubts about the, the, the next one, the 11 oclock <laughs> Rahab's an example. Is there one more? There's one more. There's a real big one. In fact, I'm going to show it to you in just a moment. Oh, the wise men lie. I didn't even think of that one. I gotta I gotta think about that one. That's good. I'm not sure that they, oh, okay. Never mind. We're gonna leave that one. But I love that. Hey, what's a what's a real big one? Abraham. Yeah, okay, but that one he was he did the wrong thing there. Abraham did lie, but it wasn't a good thing. I mean, we can think of lots of examples of people lied. How about how about the Hebrew midwives? You know what I'm saying? Let's take a look at this. Exodus chapter one. Let me just read this. Because this often comes up. People think, oh, there's exceptions to all the commands. There's not really exceptions to the commands. But let's look at this one. Okay. Exodus one, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So Pharaoh is commanding them, obviously, to do a very wicked and evil thing. He's commanding them to murder, to break the sixth commandment, right? You should murder, which is evil. And again, the sixth commandment tells us it's evil. Don't murder. It's wrong, okay? So what do the midwives do? Well, these are very courageous women, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do, okay, awesome. As the king of Egypt commanded them, that's a very brave thing to do, but let the male children live, okay? So now let's see, what's, the, what's Pharaoh going to do in response to them doing the right thing and disobeying his command to murder. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them." Now, <laughs> what is that? That is a lie, okay? It's just an out and out lie. They, they, they did not tell the truth. They said something that was overtly not true. It's a lie. Now look what God says as a result. I mean, again, someone, you know, someone mentioned the Abraham thing. I, I can show you lots of examples in the Bible where people lied, but it's always a bad thing because lying is bad. Okay? But in this case, I want you to see God's response. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families, okay? So here is an extreme example, okay, where someone lied and God actually thought that is a perfectly good thing to do. Now, of course, it's an extreme circumstance, okay? But what's happening in this circumstance is not that, it's not that lying's okay, but when two commandments collide, when you have the command to not murder, and the command to not lie, when you have evil people that force you into a situation where those two commandments collide, guess which one is more important? Do not murder. So it's an extreme circumstance. Is it? I mean, don't take from this story, oh, I can go cheat on my taxes now. I can lie on my resume. I can lie to hide things I've done so I don't get into trouble. No, no, no. Lying is wrong. But in an extreme circumstance where evil people force, pe- you know, God's people into a situation where the commandments collide, the, 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 what this story is teaching us is do not murder. To love life is the most important thing. Now, most of us will not, thankfully, ever be in a situation like that, I hope. But there's other, I mean, obviously, you know, in World War II, one of my heroes, Corrie ten Boom, her and her family hid Jews in their home. Obviously, they lied about it to people. And we would consider that a heroic act. When do not lie and do not kill come together like that, okay? It's an extreme circumstance, okay? Now, when we compare that, though, to the Sabbath, okay? So you might say, see, the Sabbath is just the same. There's exceptions to this one, there's exceptions to that. No, no. There's an exception to lying in very extreme circumstances. The circumstances when it's okay to break the Sabbath seem... Awfully unextreme in many cases. It could be a doctor, it could be a truck driver. I mean, how many of us would consider it a sin if an oil rig worker or construction workers that go up north, you know, they'll sometimes, because they have to fly far up north somewhere to somewhere secluded, they might have to work a longer shift, a 10 or 12 or 14 day shift, and then they come home for longer because it doesn't make sense to fly home every week just for a day. Most of us would not consider that a sin, even though technically that's breaking the Sabbath. So somehow inherently, we know that this is somehow different than lying and murder and stealing and adultery. But we don't quite know how to pull it together. And of course, we don't totally trust our feelings because our feelings can't always be trusted. So can we find somewhere in Scripture something that outlines for us that the Sabbath is different than the other commandments? And the answer is yes. We can actually find that in a number of places. But I want to take you to a story in Matthew chapter 12. And let's see how Jesus views the the Sabbath. And once we get a proper view of the Sabbath, then we can see... uh, perhaps, and potentially how Jesus wants to use it in your life to bring you life. But Matthew 12, starting in verse 1, it says this, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. So they were always on the move, doing ministry all over Israel. And it's a Sabbath, they're hungry, you're walking, of course, you're tired. And as they walk through the wheat fields, by the way, this is also part of Old Testament law. As a sojourner, if you were traveling, you were allowed to pick some food as you went through the fields. Um, which is, again, part of God's heart for the kind of nation uh, he wanted Israel to be. But anyway, as they pick uh, this food, they are doing it on the Sabbath, which is against the Sabbath law. In the Old Testament, it clearly said you're not to go out and gather food on the Sabbath. I can show you many passages. Let me just show you a quick one. You know, in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 16, where God's sending manna to the Israelites, and he clearly tells them at the beginning, I'm not sending you manna on the seventh day. Do not go out to collect it. I don't want you collecting food on the Sabbath. Okay, and you can see a couple of verses out there. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. In other words, they were supposed to plan ahead. The people of Israel were supposed to plan ahead during those six days of the week so that they would be able to rest on the seventh day, right? And then it says, six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none, okay? So it's against the law what the disciples are doing. And the Pharisees immediately notice this, verse two. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, okay? And they're right, okay? They're not wrong in that. So what's super fascinating to me Is how in the next verses, Jesus defends their actions. I'm going to show it to you in just a moment, but the first thing I want you to notice before we even look at it is he is not going to defend it by telling them that the disciples are not breaking the law. He's not going to try and get the disciples off on a technicality. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 you've read the law wrong. Actually, you're allowed to uh, collect food on the Sabbath in certain circumstances. That's not what he does. He defends the disciples in a way in which we would not expect, perhaps. If, especially if we were first century Jews experiencing this for the first time. So, verse three, what does he say? Okay. He said to them, and now he's going to tell them a story. But it is fascinating to me, the story he tells and the point he's making. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he's referring now to a story. Saul throws a javelin at David. Uh, David runs away. He gets very hungry. He ends up at the tabernacle where the priests are, right? Okay. Then when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, the tabernacle, and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So in that story, David goes to the tabernacle. He's like, I'm starved. I'm on the run. Do you have any food? And the priest is like, I don't have any food. Well, except the bread of the presence, which it specifically said in the Old Testament law, was only for the priests. And David says, I'll take that, and the priest is like, you can have it, and he eats it. David broke the law. Now, it's interesting to me, again, how Jesus is defending the disciples. It's not, they didn't break the law. It's like, let me tell you a story of when David broke the law and it was okay. Okay? Let me tell you a story of when David broke the law, because it was okay. Now. One of you might be sitting here and going what kind of a defense is this is jesus saying that if you're hungry you can break the law like is jesus saying you know what you murdered the guy but you were hungry it's okay you committed adultery but you were hungry it's okay do you think does anybody think that's what he's saying don't raise your hand it's wrong okay Certainly, he is not saying that it would be okay to murder, or that it would be okay to commit adultery, or that it is okay to lie or to steal, because you're hungry. And yet, he says here, it was okay for David to break the law. Why is this okay? And the answer is, again, we have to do a little bit of theolo- theological background work, which is very good for us as we try to understand the Bible. So let's remember something, and again, this is you know, quite a bit oversimplified, but it helps us to understand something. You have to remember that in the Old Testament, there were two basic kinds of laws. And really, we could divide them up into, you know, four categories, maybe, or whatever. But two basic, two basic kinds of laws in the Old Testament, okay? Theologians have talked about this for centuries and centuries. You can see there. One is you've got a group of laws that explain to you the difference between right and wrong. We could call those the moral laws. So things like do not murder and do not steal and do not lie and do not commit adultery these are moral laws they they define the difference between right and wrong right so a moral law is something that doesn't just apply to the jewish people at a certain point in time a moral law is something that is universal it applies to all people always it's always bad to murder whether you're an israelite living in the middle east in the wilderness somewhere 3,500 years ago, or whether you are one of us living today in Canada in 2019, or whether you live in an Amazon rain jungle, or whether you live in a big city in Europe or Asia. Murder is always wrong, adultery is always wrong. Lying and stealing are wrong, 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 wrong. Those are moral principles, right and wrong, they're written by God, they're out of his character and written by God into the fabric of the universe, moral laws. But of course, not all the laws in the Old Testament are like that, are they? You've got laws that tell you the difference between right and wrong. But then you have another group of laws, which we could call sacrificial laws or ceremonial laws. And they tell you what to do when you break one of the moral laws. Does that make sense? So the moral law tells me it's wrong to steal. The sacrificial law tells me how do I get right with God if I break that command to steal? Does that make sense? Now, when Jesus died on the cross, did he change the definition of right and wrong? Before Jesus died on the cross, it was wrong to murder. After Jesus died on the cross, was it still wrong to murder? Yes. Before Jesus died on the cross, it was wrong to commit adultery. After Jesus died on the cross, it was still wrong to commit adultery because Jesus, death on the cross didn't change the definition of right and wrong, it didn't change the moral laws, What Jesus' death on the cross did is it changed what we do about breaking those moral laws, which is we no longer need to sacrifice. Before Jesus' death on the cross, there needed to be animal sacrifice for sin and other things that you would do at the temple for atonement and with the priests. And after, Jesus' blood covers it all. So the ceremonial laws were done away with and changed, but the moral laws are there forever. But now we have forgiveness for through Jesus Christ for when we break them. Amen? Amen. Okay? So that's really important. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus says that David was hungry and so he broke the law, what kind of law was David breaking? A moral one or a ceremonial one? Ceremonial. Anything that has to do with priests or temple or sacrifice or a ceremonial law. Now, in the Old Testament, you will never read. Our division that says there's moral laws, there's ceremonial laws. It's just inherent in the text. But one of the things you will read throughout the Old Testament and many times in the prophets is you will read statements like the following, but I desire mercy, not what? Sacrifice. You know why? Because God always considered the sacrificial laws to be less important than the moral laws having to do with love your neighbor as yourself and all of that. These were always less important to him. These were always meant to be temporary. So Jesus' argument to the Pharisees is not that David didn't break the law. His point is, actually, when it comes to those sacrificial laws, hunger, David's hunger and survival were more important to God than him following a sacrificial law. People actually matter more importantly than those laws. Does that make sense? Now, it's very interesting. He's using that defense when the Pharisees talk about the Sabbath. Is he comparing the Sabbath to a moral law or a ceremonial law? Ceremonial. Okay? Now, look what he says next. He carries on. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What does he mean by the word profane? He means they were working on the Sabbath. He's like, and haven't you guys ever noticed? Like, obviously, this law must be different than murder, because can you ever imagine Jesus saying a statement like, and when the priests murder, they're guiltless. No. When the priests commit adultery, they're guiltless. Never. When the priests lie and steal, no. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God judging the priests when they broke those moral laws. And yet, priests are allowed to work on the Sabbath, because someone's got to do the work of the Sabbath stuff that's happening. And Jesus says, obviously." This law is different than these big moral laws, okay? And then he goes on to say this, my favorite part. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. In other words, who got rid of the temple and the sacrificial laws? Jesus, when he died on the cross. These laws are part of God's character. The moral laws are part of God's character. They will always tell us the difference between right and wrong. But these laws over here, Jesus was always greater than the temple. That was just a temporary thing. And if you had known what this means, and here he quotes what I just, he's quoting from the Old Testament, that shows up all over the Old Testament. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. By the way, this is still true today. Okay? When we sacrifice and discipline ourselves because we love Jesus, that's a wonderful thing. But when Christians become Pharisees, thinking that you earn your spirituality, by how much spiritual stuff you do, and it doesn't actually turn outwards into acts of love and mercy and grace, Jesus reminds us all what really matters to Jesus is mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. And then my favorite part, for the Son of Man is Lord of the, even of the Sabbath. He basically says, I'm the boss of the Sabbath anyway. If I say it's okay, it's okay. On the boss of the Sabbath. So there it is. I'm okay with them eating grain as we walk through it. If it comes down to being hungry, because in their case, they couldn't plan ahead and do all the work in six days. They were traveling and doing ministry. He's like, it's okay for them if they walk through a field. That's not breaking the Sabbath. They're just eating as they walk. So you say, well, what's your point in saying all this? You basically just preached a whole message about how we don't need to obey the Sabbath. Well, that'll be easy to follow. Just keep doing what you're doing. Except that if we read the other version of this story, Mark chapter 2 tells this exact same story, except that at the end of it, Mark includes a saying of Jesus in answer to the Pharisees that Matthew does not include. And look at what Jesus says in Mark's account in his answer to the Pharisees. He says this, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. In other words, when God gave the Israelites the Sabbath law, he was not intending it to be just, well, I'm God in heaven and I need you to do some spiritual things so that I'll be happy. No. God didn't give the Israelites the Sabbath because it was something for him. God gave the Israelites the Sabbath because it was a gift for them. The Sabbath was made for man. God actually made the Sabbath to be a blessing to people, not as a rule to beat people up with, but as a blessing, as a, as a structure to put into your life that helps you to live a more human, God-pleasing life for him there's actually blessings in the Sabbath. So we're not going to go anywhere weird. And there are Christians out there who believe you must, they, they believe the Sabbath is like the 10 Command, the other camp commandments. You must do the Sabbath you must all this sort of stuff. We're never going to go there. And that's okay for them to believe that. You're not, you don't lose your salvation because you believe that. We're going to spend in the age to come when Jesus is on the earth, we're going to be here with them for all of eternity and they're going to be brothers and sisters. It's awesome. But we're just not going to go there as a church. The Sabbath is not the same as murder, adultery, all those sorts of things. There are exceptions to it. And we're not gonna judge each other or ourselves based on the keeping of the Sabbath. Having said that, if we can re-grab a hold of the Sabbath in freedom, not in legalism, there is tremendous life for us to be had in a gift that God gave to us. So what are, there's many, many blessings from observing a Sabbath. Let me just show you two from the Ten Commandments themselves from commandment number four let's read it again but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God on it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the soldier who's within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you the first blessing of the Sabbath is rest Because God knows that as human beings, there's a tendency with lots of us, there's a tendency to never stop. And because of that that tendency, and by the way, that tendency comes out of a good place because God also made us to work. So the natural drive to work and be productive, which is part of how he made us, then can go too far, and then we never stop. And God says, actually, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to make you stop. I'm going to tell you to stop, that you must rest. By the way, can you see the tender-hearted compassion and mercy of God in this commandment? People always think of the Ten Commandments as harsh. But if you actually pay attention, this has got to be one of the earliest examples of a law that even looks out for the welfare of animals. In this law, God even tells them, you're not even allowed. He says, I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how powerful you are. You're not even allowed to work your animals on the Sabbath. Even they get a break. The ox, the donkey, the livestock. That's what he says here. And your servants, everybody, it's a gift, it's rest. Now, I think sometimes when we read this commandment, we might have the wrong, we might take it for granted, especially here in Canada, because we have a two-day weekend. So it's like, we doubled up the Sabbath. (laughs) Now, I don't actually think we Sabbath or rest well, even though we stop work for two days a week, or many people do. Um, But even beside that, I want us just to appreciate the beauty of this law again, because um, if you look through most of human history and how humans have had to eke out a very difficult existence, and by, you know, barely surviving in many cases for many uh, huge numbers of people all over the world throughout history, to get a gift that says, you have to trust me, but, but don't you must rest once a day, and, or once a day, once a, once a week. You must rest. And I'm going to take care of you. That's a gift. And when you go around the world today, uh, you know, you might say, well, in our country, it's more the problem with underworking, not overworking. Well, I would say both problems are in our country. It's not as simple as just saying it's all underworking. I would say in our country, uh, we have lots of people who overwork, and we have lots of people who underwork. And the answer to the underworking ones is not, to give up on God's blessings, the answer is to teach a proper view of both work and rest. Amen? But if you go around the world today, in terms of appreciating this law as a gift, do you know there's many countries today where people overwork? I mean, I've spent time in Asia. In fact, in in Japan, they actually have a word for dying from overwork. It's called Kuroshi. They have a word for it because it happens so much and they they keep track of statistics. A couple of thousand people a year die in J- Japan every year from overwork. Literally, there's a whole bunch of symptoms that go with it, but you're not sleeping enough. You never stop. And eventually your body actually just goes Boop, and you're done. I mean, it's a terrible thing. I don't, but uh, Karoshi, it's, over, it's overwork. And into that, God says, rest. Sabbath is a gift. Rest is a gift. Not something to feel guilty about. So many of us in our culture feel guilty about not being productive. And there's a place for being, feeling guilty if you never are productive, but to cease from productivity and to rest is a gift from God. In fact, it's slavery to never stop. And that brings us to verse 15, which explicitly talks about slavery in the Sabbath. This is this, which is our second blessing you shall remember that you were a slave. One of the big reasons why God wanted the Israelites to observe the Sabbath was it was one day a week to remember that they had been slaves. In Egypt, they didn't get a day off. But I want you to take one day to remember every week that you were a slave, but you're not a slave anymore. In the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is about rest. And there's many more things too, but two things we'll just highlight here. The Sabbath is about rest and the Sabbath is about freedom. But you know, there are so many people in our culture today, but so many Christians today that are actually in slavery. Slavery to work, slavery to emails, slavery to you name it, but just constantly being connected, Slavery to worry and anxiety, those slaveries all go hand in hand in hand. I read something once, a very wise person once said, one of the problems in modern society is when we go to work, we don't really work. And when we come home to rest, we don't really rest. It's actually true. They're they're doing all kinds of studies now. They're finding in many organizations That employees are losing, this is all over the world. Employees are losing, on average, in many organizations, up to two or three hours of productivity every single day. I mean, just think of that staggering loss of productivity because of distractions. Constant emails, but not even just distractions from within the organization. Distractions, people have their phone, they're doing studies, that people with the phone, there are companies now, big companies around the world that are experimenting with making the workspace for people a phone-free environment because not only are people getting constantly distracted by emails from within the organization, they're getting constantly distracted by social media and texts and different things from outside the organization. And so we have, as a whole group of people, you go to work all day and you come home exhausted because your brain's been going all day long, but you've spun your wheels and you haven't gotten nearly as much done as you wanted to do or could do because, you've never been able to totally focus in on your work. That's what they're finding. So you go to work all day, and you don't ever get the satisfaction of really, truly being focused on something and being productive. And at the end of that, you go home, but because you haven't got everything done that you need to, and because you're constantly connected to everything through, the, through your device, you go home and you continue. You don't rest now either, because you continue to do emails and work things at home. Your brain never really turns off of work, and your brain never really gets focused on work. And so many people in our modern society are trapped in a slavery where they never really rest and they can't really work. And all seven days just all kind of meld into one big pile of mush of not really working and not really recharging. And into that, God says, I still have a gift for you. It was a gift 3,500 years ago. It is still a gift today. Not a law like the other laws that define right and wrong, not something to beat each other up with and judge each other over, but I actually have a gift for you. Part of being human means being free. And part of being free means having a day a week where we stop to connect with God and others and ourselves and disconnect from the things we do the rest of the week. That's part of being free so that we can then properly engage again the rest of the week. So, what is proper rest, or what could proper rest and Sabbath look like? And we could talk about many, many things. Let me finish this message with just a few practical things. First of all, a proper practice of a Sabbath, again, not a rule, not a law. You're not going to lose your salvation if you don't do it, but you will miss out on life because the Sabbath was made for man, it was a gift. But a proper Sabbath is not just about not working. And that's what I mean by the two-day weekend. A lot of Christians might think, well, I get two days off from work every week, so that's a Sabbath. You're not just having a life-giving Sabbath because you aren't at work. I talked to a business person not that long ago who said, he said, 20 years ago, the biggest reason why people called in sick on Monday morning was because they had been drinking too much on Sunday night. He said, he said, we get that very rarely now, but he said we get something else extremely commonly. He said the biggest reason now why employees call in sick on Monday morning is because they've been up all night, Sunday night, and Saturday night playing video games. It's actually true. I had a business person tell me this. He said, this is common. This is a problem. Now, is it bad to play some video games? No. And if you have a day off, to, if, if that's what you like to do and you, you want to play an hour of video games or something, sure. This is nothing, there's no law against that. That doesn't mean it's not a bad video game. But is that rest? If you're up all night, stimulated, right, your brain's going, you're having fun, it feels like I'm not at work, therefore I'm resting, but you're not resting because that's why you can't go back to work recharged. You haven't had a Sabbath, you've been off of work, but you haven't had a Sabbath. Not that it's bad to watch a movie, not that it's bad to play a video game, but sabbath is about a lot more than just not working there's got to be some if it's a gift from god there's got to be some kind of rest involved actual rest and true rest includes disconnecting from the regular noise of the rest of your life david says this in psalm 131 verse 2 but i have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me but i have calmed And quieted my soul. Now, this is one of the plagues that is part of the fruit and part of the root of why there's so much anxiety and stress today. Literally, one of the reasons, one, there's lots, that people feel so much stress today is we've actually lost the art of how to quiet. We just, all we have is constant stimulation. That's what anxiety is it's the inability to slow your brain down. And of course, that's not the only reason, but that's a major reason why it's becoming epidemic in our culture today. We don't know how to quiet. The moment we have any time to quiet, you know what we do? We go on a phone, and again, it's not bad to be on a phone, but when every minute that could be quieting is this, this, the research shows your brain keeps going like this when you're on it. And when you don't quiet, you eventually end up in an anxious state because your brain doesn't know how to go less than 5,000 RPM. Now, one of the problems though, when Christians read this verse, is we have a very narrow understanding of what it means to quiet. Very, very narrow. When we read this verse, we go, what David is talking about there is when I sit in a chair, my journal, my Bible, and I'm praying. First of all, that is one important way to quiet. Yes, and we should practice that kind of quieting daily to journal, to pray, to read God's word. Yes. But lots of people struggle with that kind of quieting. And lots of you are nodding inside right now when I say that. I've had many conversations with people over the years, and it's like, I can't get my thoughts to slow down when I sit down and have devotions. I remember having a conversation, I've shared about it before, but I remember having a conversation with, a, with an awesome guy in our church, and uh, he was telling me, I, my mind just races all day long from when I wake up to when I go to bed. And he says, I can't, even during my devotions, my mind just races. I, when you guys talk about quieting yourself, I don't know how to quiet So I asked him a question. I said, well, is there ever? Because he just talked about how his brain was always going. And guess what? When your brain's always going, that's slavery. That's a terrible feeling. So I asked him a question. I said, well, is there ever a time in your life, is there anything ever that you do when it doesn't feel like your mind is just racing? And he thought for a bit, and then he's like, well, because he didn't think his answer was very good. He said, well, whenever I drive my, my dirt bike, my mind just clears. And I said to him, well, then you need to drive your dirt bike more. To which he said, can you please come home with me and tell my wife that? (laughs) Should have given him a doctor's note, right? From your pastor. See, there's more to quieting. David doesn't say how you have to quiet here, but for lots of, we're all wired differently. Some people will quiet better just sitting with a journal, and that's an important one anyway. We all should work at that one. There's lots of science behind that, and there's lots of all good things to the, to the daily practice of devotion, yes, but lots of people actually struggle with that. I know tons of people where the way God has wired them, and he's so creative, I know I have a good friend who he loves to do projects with his hands, and to do a project like that and to build something or fix something at his house on a day off, just ministers to his soul makes him grateful, makes him connect to God more easily. All these sorts of things. Whereas me, if I did that, I would end up in sin, (laughs) raging and angry and all those sorts of things. So I don't do that. And another guy goes into his, I've talked about this before. You go into the shop and you work with wood. Now the thing with some of these activities is you can't fit them into the daily grind of your life. For another guy, it's it's mountain biking or doing something in nature. For women, then there's all, men and women, there's lots of different ways, things, how God has made us, that if we think about it, we just didn't think of those things as spiritual before, but if we think about it, yeah, when I do that, it quiets, I can actually hear God after I've done that. Well, you can't fit those kinds of things. Like a devotional practice can be fit into half an hour, an hour every day, but some of those practices you can't, but that is why the Sabbath is a gift. Once a week, you have a day where you actually can invest a morning or a couple of hours into an activity that actually quiets your soul. And when you do that, guess what the Bible says? You get to know God. Psalm 46 verse 10, be still and know that I am God. This is not just spiritually true. It is physiologically and biologically true. Do you know that when your mind quiets, when it gets quiet and still, it actually opens up pathways in your brain to the places that are grateful and that can feel love and joy. It actually opens up, it's the way God's made you, that when you get quieted, you are better able to be grateful, you are better able to hear his voice, you're better able to love people. Now, can you imagine... If we would actually get hold of this practice again where you take a day and actually as part of that day, when you have time, you can take a portion of that day to do something that connects with how God has made you so that you can feel more grateful and you can feel his presence more and you can be more ready to pray the rest of the week. That's called the Sabbath. It's not a rule to beat people with. It's not something to feel bad about when you miss, but it is certainly something I want to have as a structure in my life to prioritize God and to grab hold of life. Which brings me to the fourth point that is rest and connection. Don't ever confuse the Sabbath with this is just a selfish day of me time. First of all, extroverts sometimes say it's selfish when introverts want to be alone. That's not selfish, it's how God made them. God made introverts, not the devil. Okay? Aren't you glad, introverts? And some of us extroverts need to be reminded of that consistently. The devil didn't make introvertism. God did. By the way, did you know an introvert actually needs to be alone? Even from their spouse sometimes. I I saw some people nodding and then looking at their spouse. Okay? I mean, I'm an extrovert. I always just thought, you know, like if I can, you know, something happens at work and I can get a half day off or something, I'm gonna just run home and be with it on. She's gonna be pumped. And often she is, and sometimes she isn't. (laughs) Right? And I used to be hurt by that. How could it not be better, your life, if I'm around? (laughs) And then I just realized how God made her. It's not because she doesn't like me, it's that she'll like me better if she can be alone and she's happier. sometimes not always right introverts sometimes does that make introverts feel bad To have a sabbath to have a day carved out sometimes or half a day where you can actually just be by yourself that's that's how God made it. that's fine but but again my point here about the sabbath is not that this is just about a big me time day the sabbath is a day for rest but it's also a day again it's not just about not working it's about connecting deeply to God and others so for many of you, this might be a day, I, there are so many people nowadays, we're so connected. And again, it's not bad. Phones aren't bad. You know, social media isn't bad. These are tools. Just don't become a slave to them. Amen? Amen. But it's so easy now. People can have 50 different chats and Insta snaps and face things, and, <laughs> right? And you think you got lots of friends as a result. And when's the last time you actually had deep connection? Lots of people complain about not even having the time to deeply connect with people. That's where joy in life comes from. You're a slave if you don't have time or space to deeply connect with friends. David had Jonathan, right? Jesus had his 12. Do you have space in your life? The Sabbath is a gift from God. What if some of you might take that day and instead of working and being connected and doing emails and that sort of stuff, what if you carve out and said, this is my coffee time with some of my close friends, or this is a time to practice hospitality. For some of you, that might be a great thing. We're gonna have a day, and then we can practice hospitality on that day, but we're gonna deeply connect with God, and we're gonna deeply connect with people. And we're gonna go back to work the next day, feeling recharged and refreshed, not feeling like every day of the week is exactly the same, because I'm always doing the same things. I'm always emailing. I'm always this, I'm always that, I'm always connected. That's the Sabbath. It's a gift from God to you and me. So here's a couple of things to think about. Again, let me repeat for the thousandth time. Sabbath is not a rule to beat ourselves up or others. You haven't deeply sinned if you miss. However, there is life to be had in a structure that follows the creation order where every seventh day you take a break from what you do the other six. So a couple of things to think about. Is it possible for you to plan a day into your week where you disconnect from email and all work-related communication? Is it possible? Maybe there's reasons why you can't. Is there a few hours in a day every week, an afternoon or a morning where you could do it? But something where there's just a break and I'm not connected. That would be an amazing thing for many of you. Here's another one. What activity or activities do you enjoy that bring rest to your soul and recharge you? Many of you have never given yourself permission even to ask that question because you would think that would be sinful or selfish. No. God made you, which means that you are part of his gift to the world. To figure out who you are and how he made you is an awesome thing. Too many people don't even know. I talked to a, a young woman last night She's like, I don't even know what I like to do. I said, well, that's a great prayer request. Start talking to Jesus about that. I don't even know what I like to do. Pray about it. It brings you peace and joy and will connect you to God. And lastly, maybe on this day or at some other time, maybe it's just time to think about friendships. Do you actually have time in your life for real friendships? Because if you don't have time for that, it's time to start seeking and making some changes. Because God made you to be a human, which means he made you for relationship. And you need people along you, alongside you for the journey. It's not just about being productive. The greatest commandment is not be productive. The greatest commandment is to love God and love people. And being productive is part of worshiping him and being made in his image. So it's a joy that we get to go to work. That's awesome but it's slavery to only work. So I want you to bow your heads to me and close your eyes. And what's one small thing God might be saying to you this morning? What's one small thing? You're not gonna radically change your life out of one message. What's one small thing? Lord Jesus, we wanna be a people who is more deeply connected to you, and we're deeply connected to others, would you speak to us about your Sabbath rest?